Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it's time for Culture Shocks with your host, Barry Lynn. Welcome to today's edition of Culture Shocks. Later in the hour, a wonderful singer, songwriter, and activist from Colorado named Liz Barnes will join us. We'll hear a few songs of hers and chat with her about how she got into the music business. But today, starting out, a conversation with two people who work for one of my favorite organizations, and it is the Center on Conscience and War. It was founded back in 1940 under a different name. It never disappears. It's always there to defend the rights of people who cannot, in conscience, participate in the United States military. It's a wonderful advocate for the rights of conscience, for opposition to conscription. I like that word because it makes it sound as bad as it is. Some people just call it the draft, which sounds like a little wafting wind. Support for conscientious objection to war from people in the military today. Two guests. Maria Santelli is the executive director of the Center on Conscience and War. Bill Galvin, the counseling coordinator. And Bill Galvin is, I think, literally the first person outside of the office that hired me that I met in Washington, D.C., like uh, dinosaurs, I think, Bill, were still around at the time. Yeah. <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> long time ago. Let, let's start with a couple basics. Uh, there's no military draft. There hasn't been since 1975, but there is registration for young men for possible conscription. You've got to register if you're a man within 30 days of your 18th birthday, and you still in general, register at the United States Post Office. You don't do it. The penalty is five years in prison and a $250,000 fine. Now, Bill, uh, back when they were thinking of reinstituting draft registration, I was very much a a part of the organization uh, that opposed it. And uh, I remember... uh, being the quote of the day in the New York Times once where I said you couldn't get all young men to register at the post office for the draft if you handed out gold bricks if they did it. Uh, (laughs) It was a smart ass thing to say but I I think I was proven correct right? I mean they're not prosecuting anyone under this statute. No. There there are 
literally millions of young men who have violated this law. In fact, probably most people don't register during that window around their 18th birthday when they're supposed to. Uh, and no one has been prosecuted since uh, 1986. 1986. I mean, when, when I kind of uh, dropped out of this movement, I think there had been 20 people prosecuted. Is that, yep. is, is that still, still the number? Yep. Mm-hmm. yep, that was it. So, Maria, tell me what happened to make this enforceable at all. In other words, if the criminal law wasn't going to use it, because the idea of sending somebody to jail for any time, much less for five years, I think was seen as absurd by lots of people, not just the people that might be prosecuted, but what was instituted at the federal level, sometimes on the state level, to make Mm -hmm. compliance occur? That's right. Exactly. So no one has been prosecuted for this felony level offense, but people are certainly punished and the punishments are severe and lifelong. Uh, Many people listening may know that if you're not registered, you're ineligible for federal student financial aid. So that's a big one. And that's a big coercive tool that forces many, many young men to register because they feel like that's the only way they're going to be able to go to college. Also, um, more recently, uh, well, of course, around that same time as the federal aid, there was um, a banishment from federal job training programs. And then more recently, those programs started in the early 80s. Uh, But more recently, Starting in the year 2000, states got into the mix and started to enact punishments of their residents if they didn't comply with the Selective Service registration requirement. And those punishments include similar, um, you know, denial of access to student aid. In some states, there's denial of access to uh, state institutions of higher learning. And most insidious is the denial of access to state driver's licenses or state ID which, of course, in this age of voter ID could very well, you know, uh, prevent someone from taking part in their right to vote, but could also prevent someone from freely traveling, you know, as they wish. These are all severe and they're terrible ideas. And unfortunately, it it was challenged in the United States Supreme Court. And uh, those of us who thought these were totally awful Uh, penalties to impose we didn't win that case does anybody know though whether with all these penalties i consider them all their punishments does anybody know what the registration rate i mean how many people who are supposed to register have actually done so certainly it's not a hundred percent oh no no um Selective Services annual reports, I I think they're most recently claiming that by the time people turn 26, (laughs) about 95% register. Um, But if you're looking at the folks who register, even during the first year they're required to register, it's about three-fourths. It's like 70-some percent. So what do those, Bill, what do those people do, though, if they want... They, they want to get a driver's license, and most states, as I understand it, do impose this. If you're not registered, you can't even get a driver's license. W- what do those people do? Well, um, in many cases, they get automatically registered. And it, just applying for a driver's license automatically gets you registered in those, in those really? states. Really? 
Okay. Yeah. In those states that require it. Yeah. That's the way it's normally implemented. Good grief. Um, and so some, so there's a lot of folks who are getting registered without even knowing that they're getting registered, without even, you know, you know, consciously making a choice to register. Um, I mean, we, we get calls every now and then from people who say, I got this registration acknowledgement from Selective Service, but I didn't register. <laughs> and when we ask them about various things, we come to find out that they got accidentally registered either by, you know, filling out the FAFSA form to get financial aid or, or getting a driver's license or something like that. With um, the the kinds of conversations that people have, I mean, I'm sure there are still people who say, maybe I'd register if I could declare myself to be a conscientious objector, but there's no way to do that. Is that That's right? right? That's, That's right. right. That's right. But this brings us to present day and opportunities for people to make real change. Um I just want to back up just a second here. Uh, Barry, you mentioned that the penalties were challenged in court. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, yeah, he's referring to a case that uh, I think was, it was the student aid case. And right. at that point in time, everyone, everyone affected by the law was under the age of 26. And okay. so what the court, and it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court basically said, well, if they want to get their student aid, all they got to do is register. So nobody's being penalized. We just have these laws that are trying to get people to register. Huh. But but it's changed since then, okay? No, most Now, most people who can't get financial aid are too old to register. Once you turn 26, you can't register. Mm -hmm. And right. so that particular court decision, we, we think... If there were people over the age of 26 that were in that category and who wanted to bring a challenge, that, that's probably a more, that, that might have a good chance now because they can't just register and get the financial aid. That's sure. right. And, they, and, they've, and they're being punished without prosecution, without defense. So this is a problem in a country that value, you know, that says we're a country that values the rule of law, you know, and we have the Constitution that is supposed to protect people in this very way. So that's a very troubling thing. And in addition to um, what you just mentioned about registering as a conscientious objector, I wanted to bring that in because this is a time when people can weigh in. There is a, a public process going on right now that's allowing people to weigh in on the future of selective service registration and the issue of conscription. And so we've been, uh, uh, well, let me just back up a little bit. So sure. folks know that right now the registration requirement is just for men. But this whole public discussion began a few years ago because President Obama lifted the combat restriction for women. In the past, the, the male-only registration requirement was challenged as gender discrimination. But the court upheld it because they said, you know what, Congress has a right to, to raise an army. They've decided an army is composed of men, and therefore this is not discriminatory. <laughs> well, now... Sure. All positions in the military, including combat positions, are open to women. And so this challenge came up again. Obviously, the court wouldn't be able to back up, you know, back its, its decision up with that again. And so Congress decided to act. In 2016, Congress was split, though. The Senate and the House were not in agreement about registering women. The Senate wanted to do it. The House didn't. So this was a must-pass piece of legislation, the National Defense Authorization Act, yep. the NDAA, that this was attached to. And so in conference committee, the two houses decided that what they would do, instead of acting at this time, they would commission uh, a study of 
the issues surrounding selective service, because over the years, there have been many attempts to abolish selective service altogether or change the requirement or institute a mandatory, you know, universal conscription, all kinds of things. This is a this is a very um, active debate still in the sure, of, course it of is. Congress. So it's, this uh, commission has been, oh, go ahead, please. No, sorry. I mean, I, one of the things about opposition to conscription is that it is not just progressives and liberals mm -hmm. who oppose it. In fact, during the time that Bill and I and many other people were working assiduously to prevent even registration, we came very close. But the two people in the House of Representatives who were most against it and worked with us on a regular basis were... Pat Schroeder, Patricia Schroeder of Colorado, a super liberal Democrat, and Ron Paul from Texas, just about the most consistently conservative person you could find. And I, I don't know, Bill, I, I remember seeing both of those people kind of every day for months uh, as they were collecting votes. And as I said, it, it came very, very close to being defeated yeah. completely. And this remained, this is still a, something that Ron Paul is passionately concerned about, but it, it, it remained an important part of you know, his legislative agenda as long as he was in Congress. And even now that he's running his Ron Paul Institute, whatever, and they, and they do blogs and things, yep. and they will sometimes, you know, call us and have us on to once again talk about how bad the draft is. Terrific. That's good. There are consistent uh, conservatives and really principled conservatives, and then uh, they have uh, other people that are running the country now. Hey, does Donald Trump, has he said anything about the issue of conscription or anything about if we had conscription, should we draft women as well as men, or is this something he just, he's so, you know, he's so busy, maybe he didn't have time to think about this yet. I don't know. You know, it's interesting because when that I haven't heard anything. Yeah, I haven't either. But when the debate was happening in Congress, you know, because it's been framed as an equality issue, women in combat, um, you know, and, and registering women. I mean, I remember hearing from my friends who worked on the ERA back in the 1970s and a, a refrain that they commonly heard from male lawmakers was you can have an ERA when you can be drafted. And so a lot of the folks who supported, you know, the registration requirement for women during that NDAA debate process were the Democrats and the Republicans, especially the Tea Party type, you know, very, very right wing Republicans were yep. very opposed to it. In fact, some of the rhetoric, you know, that was floating around was was very offensive and sexist. Of course, and misogynist. of course, horrible, you know, huh. um, in opposition to this. It, it certainly wasn't about, you know, equality under the law in any way but for the democrats it really was and so you know we had a we had a, a time that was more of an uphill battle you know convincing them to oppose it uh, not because we want to oppose women being included but because we want to abolish it and strike it down no for everyone. of course and the report is supposed to come out in 2020 right that's right yeah so uh, their, it'll be yeah. a good election year fodder do, that's do, right but do, when their recommendations do mm -hmm. you t are you talking though to people trying to make them bring this up as a major electoral issue, say, in the next presidential campaign? We have not been. No. No. Um, no. I, I mean, partly I think we're waiting to see. There's the, the, the commission is going to issue an interim report 
supposedly early in the new year. So we're expecting in the next two to three months, sure, we will have some idea of where they're going. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I think we're going to talk seriously about you know how to respond. Exactly. And of course, our what we've been pushing and what we've been organizing people to to talk about when they submit their own public comments. Um, the website is inspired to the digit2serve.gov, and you can still submit your comments through there. And we're asking people, obviously, number one, get rid of the registration requirement, overturn the lifelong punishments for everyone who's been subjected to them over the years, restore full rights to everyone. Um, and if that doesn't happen, failing that, now if we can't abolish selective service altogether, right. uh, what we do, again, we obviously want to see the punishments, the lifelong punishments overturned for people of conscience who, who could not comply with this law. But a provision, also a provision to allow people to register as conscientious objectors. That does not exist at this time, and it has been opposed by selective service. Um, But we think we may have made some headway there. We think that there are folks at selective service now who really understand the issue of conscience in a way that maybe they didn't before, and why it is a big deal, you know, simply to uh, put your name on a list. You know, the, the selective services mission is quite clear. It is to furnish personnel to the Department of Defense. It is to provide, you know, cannon fodder to yeah. to the war machine. Yeah. That's clear. I mean, that's in their mission statement. The other half of their mission statement is to provide for the conscientious objector community. So we want to make sure that 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 they, they actually live up to to, to both sides exactly. of their mission statement. Yeah, there, there tends to be when there are two sides to mission statements or two positions that any entity can take, they tend to have a little bit more interest, or in this case, an extraordinarily higher interest in one cannon fodder, although they don't use that phrase, and a little less preserve conscience. Uh, Let me turn to the all-volunteer force for a minute, because a lot of people, when this issue comes up at a a party or something, people go, oh, they still have to register for the draft. And then people say, well, what about this all-volunteer force? And I think they make, it's a, a tripartite argument. They say, well, wait a minute. Everybody who's in the military now wants to be there. Number two, they knew what they were getting into. And three, therefore, why all of a sudden would you become a conscientious objector in the military? But you talk to these people all the time. Every one of those assumptions, in my view, are false. Everybody doesn't want to be there, but it might be better than the alternative, which in many communities is unfortunately no job at all. Am I right? Well, that is true. Um, But it's it's also true that almost everybody who joins the military has no idea what they're getting into. I mean, recruiters are salespeople. Sure. And like anybody who's trying to tell you something, they're going to, you know, sugarcoat it and they're going to make it sound great. And they're not going to talk about real negative aspects to it. And we get calls every day from people who say, well, the recruiter lied or I, you know, I did not have any idea of really what I was getting into, and that's the thing. When you know, if all you've seen is the glory in the movies and the, you know, and the, and the advertisements and things like that, you really have no idea what it is you're getting into. And when you get there and you find yourself, you know, totally controlled, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, being indoctrinated with kill, kill, kill kind of stuff, and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, what about all these? Wonderful, you know, job opportunities yeah. that you know the recruiter is talking about, and and it's it's a real shock, and and almost I would I imagine that if you 
where to, uh, in fact, we get calls from people saying, you know, well, I hate it here. Why don't they let me go? You know, why don't they let me, right. let me you know, they call it a volunteer <laughs> military. And, and, yeah. and I say to them, well, if they let everybody leave who wanted to leave, who would stay? Who would stay? Yeah. Very few people. Well. Well, no, I mean, but that's a good point. But let me, let me just follow up on that a little bit. Uh, the who would stay question. Um, the the all-volunteer military made it politically. I mean, Nixon hated what was going on. He was lying about the Vietnam War. We know all of that. But also, there's a, a sense that, um, that people would volunteer would volunteer if they saw that the United States was truly in a war footing, that they desperately needed people. But is, does that even happen anymore? After September 11th, weren't they keeping people out of signing up because they had too many people who wanted to volunteer? Um, well, there there was never a consideration of a draft at that time. No. I mean, it certainly they were able to to meet the numbers. It wasn't until the hottest, you know, most horrible parts of the Iraq war that people started going AWOL by the tens of thousands and, and they were lowering the standards to get people to sign up. But when there was a real or perceived, you know, threat to the country, I mean, there was no hesitation. People were absolutely volunteering, you know. Um, the, the decline in numbers, the decline in recruitment, didn't happen until people started to see, um, thanks to whistleblowers in large part, you know, what was really going on in the Iraq war. And I think, you know, to Bill's point and to your point earlier about people not knowing what they're getting into, we certainly don't have an honest and open discussion of war. You know, it's, it's a violation of law to show caskets coming home, uh, draped in flags, you know, so we don't know. And, and, and certainly um, we're doing a serious injustice and our faith communities are, 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 you know, sometimes placing the flag in a more prominent position than, you know, the, the, the objects of worship, you know, <laughs> oh, in yeah. some cases. Um, so there, there's no discussion of conscience and war in those particular uh, settings either. So well, one of the I mean, uh, the Center on Conscience and War began as the National Interreligious Service Board for Conscientious Objectors, or at least that's what I knew. I think it started something else. It, uh, it reli- actually had another name before that. It was called the National Service Board for Religious Objectors. For Religious Objectors. Um, yes. well, let, me, let me talk about religion a minute. Um, the, the idea of being a conscientious objector, what you have to meet in order to be a conscientious objector under the federal law governing all of this, you have to be opposed to war in any form. This does not mean you can't get mad. This doesn't mean if somebody and a hypothetical comes into your house and about to kill your dog that you couldn't perhaps hit them on the head. But at least during the (laughs) Vietnam period, they tried to these people would try to trick you into believing you had to say, no, they could kill my dog in order to be a CO. But you don't have to be that. You, you do have to be against war in any form. Muhammad Ali 
you know, beat people up for money in sport. Yep. And he won his conscientious objection case in a unanimous decision at the Supreme Court. You know, so so that's the bottom line there. You know? Yeah. Well, um, for a while, though, I mean, I remember uh, getting letters from a fellow who did go all the way to the Supreme Court on on a challenge to the um, to this requirement that you be opposed to war in any form. And his argument, which was not successful, was I believe, as most religious communities do, that there are things called just wars and then there are Mm -hmm. unjust wars. But that's not recognized in the statute. The Supreme Court said that's not credible. You have to be against war in any form. Isn't that, I mean, I find that ridiculous. Most, Most people who are Roman Catholics, who are Jewish, they have some concept of a just war, but that's not recognized in any statute or in any court decision. That's absurd. That's true. Um, well, yeah, that, well, the current law, actually, the, I mean, that it's based on the wording of the draft law that passed back in 1940 yep. that uh, the people who created our organization were largely responsible for that. They're the ones that lobbied hard to get that language into the law. And they were Quakers and Mennonites and people who were opposed to war in any form. Um, And that's why it's in the law. There's many faith communities that are officially on record saying the law really does need to be changed to allow for, you know, objection to a particular war, what is commonly called selective conscientious objection. Uh, But I do want to also point out that it's not quite as, you know, closed as you made it sound there, Barry. All right. Correct me. uh, In the Gillette decision, the Supreme Court said uh, unwillingness to deny the possibility of a change of mind in some future hypothetical circumstances may be no more than humble good sense and cast no doubt on the claimant's present sincerity of belief. Okay, so, uh, so, so although... It is true if you say I would support this war or I participate in this war, you disqualify yourself. But if you are open to the theoretical possibility of a justifiable war, right? but come to the conclusion there's really no such thing, at least not in the world that we live in or the foreseeable world that we can imagine at this point in terms of reality, sure. then you can qualify. Um, the, uh, I mean, the old... The, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the in the old... That you literally had to have a religious objection. I mean, you had to find clergy people willing to help you write your CO a claim, your file with the local draft board or what have you. But then there was an important decision that, that basically said it doesn't have to be traditionally religious. It still has to encompass opposition to all wars. It can't just be a, a kind of... A, vague philosophical or political argument against this particular war, but it doesn't have to be tied to those traditional religious beliefs held by, say, the Quakers or the Mennonites, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and in fact, uh, the court, well, the, I mean, the, there's two cases that are significant in that respect. One is Seeger, and the other is Welsh. Welsh was building on Seeger, uh, but but, but at the time Seeger filled out his application, one of the questions was, do you believe in a supreme being? Right. And in response to that question, Dan Seeger sent them an essay on the knowability or unknowability of God. <laughs> 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 and, um, and, uh, 
and he he qualified otherwise. But you know, because of that uh, answer, uh, they turned him down, and that's what went to the Supreme Court, and that was and that struck down the Supreme Being clause. And then Elliot Welsh, a couple years later, who believed essentially what Dan Seeger believed, but but the question in the late '60s when I was dealing with it. Uh, and probably when you were dealing with it, was explain how your beliefs are religious. Sure. And I remember, uh, you know, following the advice I got and looked up religion in the dictionary. I explained how <laughs> Christianity fit within that definition, you know. But, uh, but uh, Elliot Welsh uh, basically said, I'm not religious. But other, but just like Dan Seeger, he qualified in all respects except for his answer to that question. Yeah. And ultimately, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that he qualified as well. Let me uh, ask you a speculative question. If you move forward, whatever comes up as a recommendation from the commission that's studying this, um, if this got to a test on the question of whether you could obtain conscientious objector status in some future draft if you believed that the particular war that you were about to be drafted into was unjust. How do you think that would shake out? I mean, we got a lot of people, uh, and most of my life for the last 25 years was devoted to religious freedom as I understood it, which was not the way the Trump administration understands it. But, but what, <laughs> yeah, about these right. people, what about these people saying, we care about religion, and then if you, say, you only care about Christianity, they go, no, 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 we care about everybody's religious freedom. Would they care about the religious freedom of a would-be conscientious objector who says, some wars maybe, this war, no. What would they say? Hmm. I mean, in this present climate, it seems like there isn't, you know, I, there there are so many, this is how we talk about it. I mean, you can declare yourself, you can be a Kim Davis of Kentucky, declare yourself a conscientious objector, and, and you have the you have the benefit of the doubt. You could be Hobby Lobby. There's yep. no, you know, there's no um, review of Hobby Lobby's investments, you know, which are, which have been shown <laughs> to be in, you know, contraceptive companies and companies that make abortive fashions and things like that. And, and yet Hobby Lobby gets the benefit of the doubt simply by claiming it. Yet someone who opposes war at any level, just, you know, believes in just war or opposes all war, has to face multiple levels of skeptical review. You know, when you are a conscientious objector from within the military, your application goes to the level of the Pentagon. The level of the secretary of your particular branch is making the decision about your fate. That's right. So it goes through the entire chain of command, through multiple, multiple levels. You have to, you know, spill out your heart and soul uh, on, on the page and then go through a number of of interviews and and you know recommendations through your chain of command based on on the record your oral and written testimony so um in this particular climate um conscientious objectors are to war are met with skepticism yeah you know? well. so i'm not sure how we we change that i mean i think our whole culture buys the argument of militarism you know going back a few moments to our conversation uh, even some top military brass are no longer saying all volunteer military and they've adopted the language of all recruited all yes. recruited well it's listen all recruited military uh, yeah. i'm sorry we're we are out of time but maria oh. santelli 
Bill Galvin, I thank you so much for letting my listeners know just what's going on with this, how they can get involved even here. I, through the uh, good services of the Center for Conscience and War, I met extraordinary people. Uh, one of them worked for the American Friends Service Committee for a long time. His name was Jim Bristol. Every time he was asked whether he, would there ever come a time when there aren't enough people volunteering for military service, Jim always he said, my fear is not that we won't have enough volunteers for the next war. It is that we won't have enough people to resist the next war. Yeah. And uh, you folks have uh, carried on that tradition and do a great service. We've got to take a break when we come right back. We'll be back with Liz Barnez, that singer, songwriter, and activist from the state of Colorado. We'll be right back. It's Barry Lynn. You're listening to Culture Shocks. My next guest is a wonderful songwriter, a justice advocate, lives in Colorado. She's a lot more than that as well. Liz Barnes, <laughs> thanks for joining us, Liz. Thanks for having me, Barry. Happy to be here. Terrific. You've been singing for uh, about 30 years, starting in New Orleans, your hometown. Do you remember the first time somebody said to you, hey, Liz, or perhaps they called you Elizabeth at the time, <laughs> Elizabeth, you have such a beautiful voice. You should be a professional singer. <laughs> I do remember that. I, I was about 12 and my neighbor, I was singing and my neighbor heard me over the fence and said, who is that singing? And I was just a little girl. And then that was enough to get me hooked. Did you yeah. play an instrument at the time? I didn't. I started playing guitar. Well, I played flute in um, in grade school band. That was my first instrument. Okay. <laughs> and first experience oh. with, with mm. um, organized music. And then I learned my older brother, I'm the youngest of six kids and um, always music playing in the house. And my older brother played guitar and he had an acoustic guitar. And so I used to pick it up when he wasn't around and had no idea what I was doing, but then learned how to play through high school. So that's my main sort of writing instrument. I play a little bit of piano badly yeah. oh. and I play drums badly, but I love playing cajon and drums. I've seen you play drums. You've been in bands and you, you played with our mutual friend, Katie Curtis. I think you played drums when you worked with her. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, do you like bands? What's the difference for you as a singer-songwriter between performing independently on your own solo and being in a band? Well, I came up in New Orleans in the band scene, in the cover band scene. So I started just being the chick singer in, <laughs> in cover bands, you know, singing all the hits of the 80s that were way beyond my vocal range. But... <laughs> But it was a great way to learn, and I played all the clubs on Bourbon Street and played with amazing musicians. So that's where I got my start. I, I didn't start playing more solo and smaller gigs until later in life, because that takes a lot more courage than, than playing in a band with really great musicians who can cover up all of your <laughs> flaws. You were kind of lured into this also by a band called The Sub Dudes. That's I heard right. The Sub Dudes play once. And, oh. But I liked them. Yeah. But probably many people that interview you don't know who they are. Yeah, well, I'm glad you do. I, I, so I grew up in New Orleans, and so I was playing music in bar, in bar bands, as we called them. And one of the drummers in one of the bands was a guy named Steve Amaday. And um, we started dating, and he was just starting to play in an original music band called The Subdudes. And so it was my first 
exposure. I had already written a couple of really sad high school girl heartbreak type songs, but didn't do anything with them. So Steve was the first, the Subdudes were the first exposure to the New Orleans original music scene. And I was early 20s um, for that. So then I just got hooked on that. And, and those guys were so supportive of me. So Steve and I were playing the cover band while the Subdudes were getting up and running. And then we all we all moved to Colorado at the same time. That's how I ended up in Colorado. So you all moved because the idea of a transition from New Orleans to Colorado, a lot of people would say, what did you find similar? Was it the music scene or was it just the the need to follow the music you're already making? I think mostly I was just following them, but my understanding <laughs> at the time was, well, part of the reason was that the New Orleans music scene is so filled with really great musicians and music. And and at the time, in the late 80s, there, there weren't a lot of paying gigs for uh, original bands. Sure. So, and so John Magney, who's the keyboard player and one of the main songwriters in the Subdudes, is from Denver. And his wife went to CSU in Fort Collins. And so they said, hey, let's go to Fort Collins. It's a great little town. We can all afford to live there. It'll be a great sort of hub to build the subdued sound and to, to get noticed. And it sure. worked. Yeah, they were noticed pretty quickly by, by uh, Entertainment Lawyer and by Label. And they got signed to Atlantic Records fairly quickly. And simultaneously, while they were taking off, I was starting to play um, more songwriter shows and and um, made some friends with musicians here and formed my band and then started taking off on my own, too. Yeah, terrific. Well, you mentioned the word wife, and I mentioned that because I don't think I should be concerned that my own wife is a big fan of this first song of yours that uh -oh. I want to play. <laughs> but it's called If I Had a Gun... Let's kind of listen to it, and then I'll ask you a few questions about Alrighty. it. All righty. If I had a gun, you'd be dead. One to the heart, one to the head If I had a gun, I'd wipe it clean My fingerprints off on these sheets They'd bury you in the cold hard ground Fist full of dirt Hold you down They'd bury you In the cold hard ground It'd be the first night I'd sleep sound 
Now, see, the reason I'm not worried about that song, which appears to be about a wife who shoots her husband and is really happy, I think the last verse is ironic. I'll drive away. Yeah. To me, to a listener of this song, a many-time listener to this song, uh, I would say she doesn't kill him. She just drives away. It's a pacifist song. It is absolutely a pacifist song. It's all, the the whole story just takes place in her head. And it's just, uh, I don't know the verb tense of if I had a gun, but it would, you know, it's all sure. happening. And when we wrote this song, so I wrote this with, with some amazing women writers, um, Celeste Krenz, who's Nashville based, Rebecca Folsom, who's based in Boulder, and Diana Jones, who was in Nashville, but is in New York now. And and when we started writing it, it was sort of Celeste was talking about her marriage, which was coming to a close at the time. And and she said, you know, Liz, there were times in my marriage if I'd have had a gun. And I said, yeah, I know. And and so the first part just kind of came out as this sort of campy idea yeah. that we were that we were saying. So the first line when I play it live uh, or when any of the other gals play it live, people laugh and, and then they start to get uncomfortable and then. Mm. And then as as Diana Jones got involved, Diana's a really great writer of uh, writing from the perspective of a character. And that's not really my forte. I write from the perspective of me usually sure. as the narrator. But sure. so she she brought in this whole different perspective of and as as we were talking about it and as we were just playing it and wrote, a, you know, a lot of stuff to it, it became a whole different story. And it was for us this woman who had been possibly potentially abused, but in a really terrible situation. And in her mind, she, you know, if I'd have gone, you'd be dead sure. one to the heart, one to the head. But then, yep. and she's imagining the whole thing. Uh, if I had a gun, I'd wipe it clean. Um, if I had a gun, no one would cry. Nobody'd care. Nobody'd mourn the day you die, you know? And sure. And then the very end, if I had a gun, I'd drive away. Yeah. So it's it was that, I guess, you know, sense of a gun is seen as a sense of power. Sure. Although none of us are really gun folks. And no. It just worked. No. No. Well, it, do, it does work. <laughs> and I, I met you through my own involvement with Americans United for Separation of Church and State. It's one of the causes yeah. you've helped to support over the years, along with uh, working on support for victims of Hurricane Katrina, going back to your roots in New Orleans. And uh, this idea of community and an idea of charity probably also runs into your second vocation, aside from being a singer-songwriter, and that is being a realtor, because there seems to be a real spirit just in the publicity for that realtor company that you are a part of to find people a spiritual connection between what people want and the home you're trying to find for them. I wish I had more people in my life who actually worked that way. I had one person who really and truly cared matching the spirit of the buyer 
with the spirit of the home. I think you do that. I wish you were my realtor, (laughs) but I I can't move to Fort Collins because I don't have any children living there. Yeah, you got to be where the kids yeah. and the grandbabies are. Yeah, but, of course. Yeah, I got really lucky. I mean, as I as I started to kind of come off the road more and um, want to be a little more anchored at home, I was contemplating what I could do for a day job and how I could still be of service in my community and how my career in music here and having my name sort of be recognizable, what will you know, what can I do that that would serve me and then I could serve others? Sure. And and so, and I've, I've been a house painter for a lot of years. I love doing remodels on houses. So that's always been a passion of mine. And I have a couple of friends who worked for this company, the group. And I always really uh, appreciated and respected the approach that these folks took to real estate. So I asked more questions and then, sure. Then um, studied and took the test. And as I was interviewing companies that I thought I might want to join, because you have to be with a company for two years, they really impressed me. And reading the the head guy from from the group, his book uh, about ninja selling, and I don't want to be a, a commercial for him because he, <laughs> he, does, sure. he does well enough on his own. But it the the approach was uh, I felt was an integrity with my spiritual approach to life. It wasn't about selling. It's not about the hard sell. It's about how can I serve this person's needs? What can I do? Uh, how can I be a matchmaker to help find this person um, a home? And home is a big theme in all of my songs, too. It's always about it is. finding home. So it kind of um, all fits and works together. And they're really wonderful people that I get to work with there. And I've, I've worked with a lot of first time home buyers and, um, and I remember being a poor struggling musician and trying to buy my first house and nobody would, you know, banks wouldn't help me. Sure. And I, I, I couldn't get any help, but I had a really great realtor who just kind of walked me through it. And so I thought, you know, I want to be that person for young people trying to buy a house or older people trying to buy sure. a house the first time. That- that's great. Um, yes. Hey, Fort, uh, Fort Collins. Yes. Uh, let me tell you about. Here's how I know about Fort Collins. A long time ago, I used to. I worked for the ACLU, and then in the evenings, I did a talk radio show, a modeled along the lines of Crossfire, with a really conservative, a nice conservative. There were nice conservatives. <laughs> I at remember the time. those. Yes, they were very nice, and uh, and we had a, this marvelous producer. But he, he had these quirky interests, and uh, he would come, you know, we'd get there at, I think, 5 o'clock, and, and he'd say, well, these, these are the eight people I booked for today, and they'd always have, like, one United States senator who's really good at this, and then he'd have these quirky things, and one day he said, and I found that there's a topless donut shop in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I have the manager on. You is did? That, From Debbie it, Does Donuts. Debbie does donuts. Yes, that Not was a that big I, yeah. thing. But I think when the manager came on, the manager said something like, well, I mean, it's not a standalone donut shop. It's part of an adult shop. Is that right? Or was well, it a standalone? I, I, strangely enough, I didn't go there for my donuts. No, I can't uh, believe that. <laughs> I know. Why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> <laughs> but it was such a big deal around here. Um, and it was like right off the interstate too. So it was right off of I-25 and the main exit into Fort Collins. Jeez. So it was kind of over in that no man's land sort of place. But 
Yeah, it, it was a big deal. I don't know anyone here, or they're just not saying, who actually yeah. went. Really? Yeah, so it was just more of a news show than it was actual. Yeah. <laughs> actually, you know, uh, frequented. It was, um, I, I don't remember much of the details. And I, of course, never went there. But um, because I never, I've never been to Fort Collins. I've been to Boulder many times. I've been to Denver many times. I've never been to Fort Collins. Well, so, Fort, yeah, Fort Collins is a great little town. And um, the music scene here is really amazing. And we have some great support networks here with a company called Bohemian Foundation that supports uh, festivals. And we have a place called the Music District where where young and or old musicians can go and explore their their music and get mentoring and uh so we're really lucky and for terrific yeah wonderful yeah speaking yeah. of music let's let's do another song okay, this, let's is do that. A, this, this is a song called the road to nowhere all of us make a lot of decisions in our lives sometimes we and others don't think they were the best decisions but when push comes to shove all those decisions it is in fact what we make as a life the song the road to nowhere here it is
that's the road to nowhere on one of Liz's albums, easily available uh, now. It's on Welcome Back. Welcome Back is the name of the album. This yes. song. Yes. Is it more or less what I said it was? That's it, absolutely right. And I think for me, I like to talk more about like what inspired songs because it might mean yeah. something for everybody. But for me, Please. it was inspired by actually partly by my dad who's 95 years old lives in new orleans um but but i remember when i started working um a job and i worked for the bohemian foundation for a while and he said oh i'm glad to see broad that you finally got a real job (laughs) 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 and he calls women broads but um but i you know i had been a music a musician for all of my life and i made four records and um and and he supported me in that, but never really got the idea that that was a real job. So it's it's sort of that you know I never wanted to be on the inside of of what people see as a normal or you know real job. Sure. It just it never worked in my life, so I never made that choice. And then uh, when I got in a relationship with a woman, and then you know it's like oh my gosh, that's gonna you know be the doom of your life and it wasn't for me and um so so that's sort of where that came from like you know um living in the status quo doesn't work for everybody and nor nor should it but there is love and there is peace and there is strength and there is truth even if you're following a road that other people go wow that's where you're going with that (laughs) (laughs) one of the uh one of the things i learned uh, very much in that uh, charitable venture that we did at Americans United for three years was just the struggle of individual singer songwriters and how difficult it is for them without an additional job to continue to make a living and to be able to provide for a family and all of that. And But one of the great things that's been developing lately is is crowdsourcing. And I love yes. to crowdsource. And the only failed crowdsourcing project I was ever involved in was a, a friend of mine back in high school. He went out to, okay, stole his mother's car and he <laughs> drove across the United States and he got to Arizona. And uh, then he was picked up by the police. But his mother, to her credit, said, no, he didn't steal the car. I loaned it to him. <laughs> now that's the kind of parent you really want. But yeah. anyway, and he had this idea for a, a TV series about steampunk, which is uh, kind of a, a little offshoot of science fiction. And he, he tried to raise enough money and he didn't quite make it. But I do love uh, songwriters and I love Hit Me Up the next time you crowdsource anything because it's a great way for fans to come up, do what they want to do, put out new music, or in a couple of cases, put out old stuff, reissue it that they can't get a new label to do. So I guess you're a crowdsource fan because you've been using it. Yeah. Yeah. I never did go the um, label route. I mean, you know, uh, they didn't want me, but... (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I've always been independent and worked day jobs to pay for, um, for recordings and for everything else for that matter. And then the last record was the, the first time that I did a Kickstarter campaign. Um, you know, it's, it takes a lot to ask people for stuff, you know, and for money and, um, but I figured that maybe put me in a really good position to really 
find some deep gratitude and appreciation sure. for for the idea of asking for help when you need it. Absolutely. So, so it helped me to work through that. But but and I've supported a lot of Kickstarter campaigns um, to help people fund tours or recordings or um, uh, art projects and. Um, but it is, it's a great way for us to be able to ask for help for one thing, which a lot of people have trouble with and then to receive it. And also the fun part for me was, was when I, you know, met the goal and then, um, recorded and a, a couple of the rewards were come record with me in the studio. And so sure. I had this group participation song, which, you know, brought <laughs> community together and it was the party track, like, you know, the old days party tracks. And that part was the best feeling of coming together and community. So, so it was still face to face and it was still hands on, even though it was all done, you know, on the internet and, um, but there was still a way to, to make a real sure. and lasting connection. And that, that, that feels good. That's great. Let me, uh, let me ask you one other question. Yeah. Is there, is there one musician that you played with prospect? opened for, played with, where you said, I cannot believe this is happening to me. <laughs> well, playing with Katie Curtis was one for sure. Okay. Well, I, and I've been a fan of hers and, and a contemporary of hers, but um, always knew of her. And then I opened a show for her in Denver at Swallow Hill, which was the first time we actually met. And, um, and I said... And I just played guitar and songs, and then uh, she played. And sure. uh, and I said, I said, you know, I know you're playing in Fort Collins tomorrow night. I live in Fort Collins. And she said, oh, come to the show, because that's typical Katie. And I said, of course. I said, look, I don't do this often, but I do play cajon. I'm percussionist, and I'd love to right. sit in with you on a couple of songs. So she said, bring the cajon down for sound check, and, you know, maybe play on a couple of songs. And I said, great. So I brought the Cajon down for sound check and I played on a couple of songs and sound check. And then she invited me up on maybe the second or third song. And I played the whole set with her. And then I started touring with her and we became friends. And um, I, I just admire her songwriting. Her, she's so prolific and um, just her as a human being. Um, I love doing that. That's so, great. Yeah, she's definitely one. I, I got to record with Vinny Kaliuta. I'm kind of a drum geek, and Vinny yeah. uh, is a Los Angeles drummer, and he's sure. on he's on my record Revealed, and uh, he's just spectacular and fantastic. And that was an awesome experience. And wow. um, been on festival bills with Bonnie Raitt, who was amazing. Um, so, and the Subdudes, those guys I toured with with them as an opener uh, for many years and they're just always inspiring and creative so those are some terrific well <laughs> that's that's a great answer thank you so much and thanks for doing this interview i want people to know that liz barnes has albums are available if you go to the landing page for this episode of culture shocks you can find the links or why don't you just give out an internet address and people can buy it right away www.lizbarnezmusic.com Thanks so much. That Thank does you. it for today's edition of Culture Shocks. A little bit about conscientious objection. A little bit about music. We'll be back next week. I hope you join us then. 